What's up, everybody? I'm Ed, and this is Current History. Today, we're going to be talking about drones and how they're already changing the way countries fight wars. Armed drones have gone from science fiction to science fact, and it ain't just big countries that can afford the entry price anymore. Unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs, for spying and combat are now so widely available that those countries that don't have their own drone industry can find someone willing to sell them. Today, we're going to talk about how drones are changing the way wars are fought, while talking about how drones have been shaping the civil war in Yemen and the border conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. We're getting farther from this being current history the longer it takes me to get this out, because the civil war in Yemen is ongoing, and this fight between Armenia and Azerbaijan only just ended. When I started writing this, they were still fighting both wars, but I was slow on the jump, so today's show is, like, a little bit ago history. These two conflicts show the major changes that drones are bringing to the battlefield in the same way that other tech advances have completely changed warfare, like planes or nuclear bombs or machine guns. I'll also be giving a crash course on some international politics, which means I'm going to be glossing over a lot of really complicated history with simple statements like saying a country won or lost a war for a particular reason. I want everyone to understand at the top that this background history could foot a thousand books of detail and nuance, and I'm going to blast through that in about a sentence so I can get to the point, so bear with me. However, if you do find something from a detail to an entire point to be incorrect, let me know. With that, let's get to the drones. But first, probably an ad for the very service that I'm using. You should use it. It's Anchor. It's neat. Here it goes. Bam! The United States set the tone on how drones are used today, because we used them early and often. From the perspective of the president, drones allow you to accomplish dangerous missions without any risk of losing your people, which explains why these programs have grown in scope. But drones are not a silver bullet, and they have major downsides because of the unconstrained way that we've used them. While many countries have fiddled with the idea of remote-controlled planes, UAVs as we know them got their early usage in combat with the Vietnam War and surveillance drones. The U.S. deployed the MQ-1 Predator drone in the mid-1990s, and since then they've only expanded their use of drones both in combat and by the CIA. We have drones that can fly for days at a time and drones that can drop a Hellfire missile or record video over thousands of square miles in a day. There are micro-UAVs that are like little helicopters that fit in the palm of your hand, and kamikaze drones that can be deployed as a swarm from a submarine, ship, or backpack. In countries like Yemen, the civilian population must deal with the business end of American investment in drones, and so they are forced to live in fear of the low buzz of a circling predator drone, which could be recording them or prepared to drop a bomb. One tragic example of the destruction we have wrought on Yemen is the example of Mike Dad Tuayman, a guy right around my age who described his experience with drones over his village in Yemen as, quote, basically, we felt that they have no respect for human life. We felt very afraid, end quote. Drones have gone from a once-a-week occurrence to as many as four times a day in his village, sending children running for cover and reminding Mike Dad of of who he has lost to U.S. drone strikes. 
His father, Saleh, and his 17-year-old brother, Jalal, were killed by a drone strike while driving to recover some missing camels. His 13-year-old brother, Mohammed, was killed in a separate strike. Mike Dad's surviving 14-year-old brother was the first to find the bodies of their father and brother, and has started to say, quote, they're going to kill me next, end quote. All three of these family members would have been classified as enemy combatants because under the Obama administration, they changed the way they counted civilian casualties so that any male of military age was automatically considered a combatant. Under the Trump administration, accountability got even worse since he repealed the Obama-era policy of publishing the number of civilian deaths at all, calling it superfluous and distracting. Our previous Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has served as the CIA director, and one of the changes he pushed for was to take restrictions off of CIA drone strikes that were put in by President Obama, who was worried about the unaccountable CIA having so much control over how America uses drones. A big part of why drones were embraced as a technology for assassination is the lesson that American politicians took away from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Both were ground invasions, which means a lot of lives, money, and political will spent on something that can and did turn into an infinite boondoggle. Drone strikes appeared to be the perfect alternative, as it only requires a secure airfield and an information network to figure out who to go after. Since the government data is haphazard and completely doesn't include the CIA drone program, we can only estimate the damage the U.S. drone program has done. In their comprehensive list of drone strikes, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism has recorded that out of 14,000 confirmed strikes, between 9,000 and 17,000 people have been killed, including from 1,000 to 2,000 civilians. This reliance on drone strikes creates what the CIA refer to as blowback, which is the people who are radicalized against you for killing their son, father, friend, or grandma. For every civilian killed, there are new friends or family members that become radicalized against the sci-fi dystopia villains that killed them from the sky. One State Department official estimated that for every innocent person killed in a drone strike, it inspires the recruitment of as many as 40 to 60 people. But the time of undisputed American dominance of drones has ended. Other countries have already begun to use drones on the battlefield, and they have learned from our example when we use them in countries we weren't at war with and then denied knowing anything about the strikes. Now that other countries have drones, when they use them, they have a ready-made excuse. The international relations version of screaming, I learned it from you! I learned it from watching you! There are more than 36 countries that have added drones to their arsenals, and that means that the technology is also trickling down to non-state actors. Iran has an established drone industry, which means proxy forces that they support all over the Middle East also have drones. China has drones that are designed to fly at supersonic speeds while maintaining stealth to direct missiles against the U.S. aircraft carriers if a war breaks out. In the Armenia-Azerbaijan border war, Azerbaijan deployed drones that will fly laps for hours until they get the signal and then fly at targets and detonate their explosive payload in a kamikaze attack. 
This technology is officially out of the gate, and now we have to deal with it. So let's dive into the specifics of two drone wars, starting with the civil war in Yemen. So the civil war in Yemen has been active since 2014. One side of the civil war is the Yemeni government from prior to 2014, which is led by a man named Abradabra Mansur Hadi, which I will refer to as the Yemeni government or the Hadi presidency. The opposition to the Hadi presidency is the Houthis, a group mobilized around a sect of Shia Islam, the same religion that is the majority in Iran and Iraq, although the Houthis follow the specific Zaidi branch of Shia Islam. The Hadi presidency is supported by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, primarily driven by Saudi Arabia, whose royal family is in a regional feud with Iran. If you were to oversimplify the Muslim world into two main factions, you would have Saudi Arabia as the leader of Team Sunni and Iran as the leader of Team Shia. The Houthis are supported by Iran, which has provided weaponry to the Houthis, particularly drone parts. The United States has supported Saudi Arabia in this conflict, which means we are working against the Houthis and Iran. Caught in the middle of this are the people of Yemen, who have suffered from airstrikes by US-made weapons and a blockade by the Saudi coalition, which has resulted in 80% of Yemen's 28.5 million people dealing with shortages of basic supplies like food, medicine, and clean drinking water. The Saudi-led coalition has failed to crush the Houthis, and their reliance on airstrikes on civilian targets like hospitals, school buses, and wells has inspired hatred among the people of Yemen for the coalition and for the United States, which manufactured and sold many of the bombs Saudi Arabia is dropping. Ever since the Saudi coalition began their intervention, airstrikes and blockades in 2015, they've waged a brutal and terrible war within Yemen. The Houthis were unable to strike back at Saudi Arabia within their homeland until they got access to drones from Iran. The first drone ever used by the Houthis was a DJI Phantom Quadricopter, the kind that you can get at the mall for 1500 bucks. The marketing slogan for the DJI Phantom 1 is, quote, a flying camera that anyone can use, end quote, and I really don't think they were thinking of this when they said anyone can use it. The original drone was allegedly stolen from a local news station, and wasn't exactly the pinnacle of stealth surveillance, but it might help you see if anyone's hiding behind the next hill. From 2015 to 2016, reports began coming out of the Houthi fighters deploying drones for ISR tasks, which stands for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance. By 2017, drones had become a key piece of the Houthis' strategy in the conflict, for both military and propaganda uses. This is when long-range armed drones started being used by the Houthis, and they were recognized as the first viable weapon for striking against Saudi Arabia in their own country. Iran provided drone parts and design expertise to begin homegrown production of drones by the Houthis within Yemen, which has enabled Iran to expand its proxy conflict capabilities against the Saudis. In September of 2019, a major attack was launched against the Saudi Aramco oil processing facility at Aikayak, 
This attack included drones and cruise missiles, and single-handedly cut Saudi Arabia's oil production in half while the facilities were repaired. The Houthis took credit for the attack, but there are claims floating around that the attack was launched from Iran and not from Yemen. Even if some drones were shot down and investigated, it might be difficult to prove whether they were produced in Iran or Yemen because they would be using Iranian parts and the same Iranian designers either way. In the aftermath of the attack, the leader of the Houthis offered the Saudi coalition peace if they would withdraw from Yemen or else the next strike would be even more painful. So what has been the result of drone use by the Houthis in Yemen? Well, for starters, it has changed the balance of power between poor states and rich states. Traditionally, air power is only ever really a tool that one side can use effectively in a conflict, because in a war like World War II, both sides will have an air force of fighters and bombers. And if your fighters beat the other side's fighters, then you have air superiority and can engage in bombing missions to affect the way the battle is going on the ground. If you don't have air superiority, then the other side's fighters and bombers can attack your troops, causing massive problems for the ground war. In a war like World War II, air superiority isn't so absolute, because both sides are producing more planes and might be able to seize temporary air superiority in one place in order to run bombing missions. Smaller countries would need to make massive investments in a few planes to have any air capability, and once you've spent so much money, losing a few planes is a disaster. That's because manned aircraft are large, expensive, and are therefore a major blow if you ever lose a single plane. Drones are completely changing this dynamic. If a group of fighters can import parts, they can put together planes that are cheaper, easy to deploy by hand or from a truck, and much less damaging if the planes are lost in an attack. Even more importantly, because drones are cheaper and easier to justify losing, you can launch an attack with drones even if your enemy has air superiority. The Houthis have used drones to launch attacks into Saudi Arabia, and even if half are lost in one attack, you can still deal a ton of damage without losing trained pilots or expensive manned planes. As drones become cheaper, they will be the IED of the sky cheap and easy to use against an enemy, but extremely difficult and resource-intensive to prevent. Until there are readily available countermeasures, drone attacks will be a powerful way for an organization to attack targets with very low risk to themselves. The United States military is acutely aware of this threat, and the two major innovations they are attempting to neutralize drones is signal jamming and laser interceptors. Signal jamming would just cut off the control of the drone from being received, while laser interceptors would burn the drones out of the sky from a distance. Both of these technologies are being particularly focused on because they have the added benefit of combating the next stage of drone threats, the drone swarm. If you're sending in cheap and easy-to-lose drones, why not send a hundred? Or a thousand? Sure, anti-aircraft guns can take out many of these drones, but even if only 10% of the drones manage to fire their missiles, that can do a ton of damage. This is a particular threat to the US Navy, which relies on massive ships that cannot be easily replaced. Instead of one ship-killing missile being fired at an aircraft carrier, you could send a thousand suicide drones that will try to fly into the ship and explode. 
Like the kamikaze pilots of Japan during World War II, they could do incredible damage by treating their aircraft as expendable, but they wouldn't need to put their lives on the line. Widespread usage of drones along the same lines as the Houthis could mean that a ragtag army could use a drone swarm to take out high-value targets even if there are air defenses, because it would be difficult to take out every drone if there are hundreds. Let's switch gears for a second to talk about another conflict that just showed the power of drones to change the battlefield, the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. These two countries are in the Caucasus Mountains, which means they're the only people not lying if they fill out their race as Caucasian on a survey. Armenia is predominantly Christian, while Azerbaijan is predominantly Muslim. Armenia has a defensive treaty with Russia, while Azerbaijan is supported by defensive treaties with Turkey and weapon sales from both Turkey and Israel. Both Armenia and Azerbaijan have beef with each other, stemming from when they used to be part of the Soviet Union and the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region, which had a majority Armenian population but was run by Azerbaijan. When the Soviet Union exploded in the early 90s, both countries jumped ship and declared independence, but control of this region was a point of contention between the two states. Armenia and Azerbaijan have been fighting over control of the region since at least 1988, and in multiple border conflicts, Azerbaijan has failed to push the Armenian-backed armies out of the area, partially because it is terrible terrain to fight in. Nagorno is derived from the Russian word for highlands, while the locals call it by the French term Haut-Karabakh, which means Upper Karabakh. This place is as mountainous as Skyrim, except instead of snow and open plains, it is heavily forested with scattered river valleys and flatlands. This geography creates a major advantage for defenders and whoever has the support of the locals, both of which, in this case, are Armenia. The Nagorno-Karabakh region is internationally recognized as being a part of Azerbaijan, but it was controlled on the ground by a local government called the Republic of Artsakh. Artsakh ran its own elections and had a president in Congress, but the Republic was heavily reliant on Armenia for trade and military support. Armenia refused to recognize Artsakh as a part of Armenia because it's better for their interests if it exists as a separate country, because the international community really doesn't like it when one country seizes part of another with military force. International public opinion is really important in conflicts between small countries, and every decision that Armenia and Azerbaijan make has to cater to foreign public opinion. Azerbaijan has a bigger military, but if they attacked Armenia directly, then Russia would be obligated to defend them, and if Russia gets involved, then Turkey could have jumped on Team Azerbaijan. However, the Russians are only obligated to defend Armenia if they are attacked in their own territory, and since Azerbaijan nominally owns Nagorno-Karabakh, they can invade it all they want without dragging in Russia. But in the worst-case World War I-style alliance blunderfest, if Armenia had been attacked on their soil, there was a risk that Russia could get involved in the conflict, which would probably mean that Turkey could get involved, and if Turkey were to be attacked on their own soil by Russia, they could trigger Article 5 of NATO and pull in Europe and the United States, and then we're in full-on fire-and-brimstone nuclear world war. 
Nobody wants that to happen, so both Turkey and Russia stuck to supplying weapons to their chosen side, like two people strapping knives to Roombas and making them fight. It's a thing, they're called Doombas, and it is the modern-day version of gladiatorial combat. Anyway, in this case, Armenia and Azerbaijan are like the international politics version of a Doomba. So there's some background on the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh. But how did drones come into the picture? Well, Azerbaijan wanted to fully control what they saw as their territory, but since they lost the last war over Nagorno-Karabakh, the Republic of Artsakh was running things and keeping them out. They lost the last war because of the crazy difficult geography of the area, which makes tanks and trucks hard to use, the lack of a substantial air force, and political instability back home. They'd been building up their military since then, and one of the things that had given them the confidence to try to retake the region is their purchase of armed and scout drones from Israel and Turkey. The Israeli company Aeronautics signed a deal with the Aziris for $13 million worth of Orbiter 1Ks, a drone platform that can be kitted out for either recon or can be converted to a loitering munition, aka a suicide drone. The Orbiter can fly for two to three hours before tucking into a steep dive and hitting a moving target with its explosive payload. In 2017, when the Israeli company that sells these loitering munitions was in Azerbaijan to sell them the Orbiter system, the Aziri military wanted them to demonstrate the drones before they bought the weapon system. So while these salesmen were in the middle of their demonstration, the Azerbaijani commander ordered them to attack an Armenian position. The two Israeli salesmen refused to bomb the Armenian soldiers that they could see from the drone's monitor, but a senior representative of the company seized the controls and operated the drone themselves, ultimately missing the Armenian soldiers targeted. The story seems perfectly made for the blockbuster Hollywood action movie about this. Azerbaijan is the third largest consumer of Israeli weapons, purchasing $137 million worth in 2017. Recently, Azerbaijan has also purchased the Sky Striker Loitering Munitions, which can carry an explosive payload ranging from 11 to 22 pounds. Turkey was also supplying Azerbaijan with drones, selling them the Bayraktar TB2 mid-range strike UAV, which is more comparable to a Predator drone in that it launches missiles instead of being the missile. These drones have been used extensively in Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, and the videos of the Aziris blowing up Armenian tanks, artillery plate pieces, and soldiers in defensive positions are all over the internet. In order to project an image of success to the outside world, the Aziri Defense Ministry released a bunch of propaganda videos of these drone strikes. In the strike footage, you can see targets destroyed like artillery, tanks, trucks, troop transports, and men just standing around in trenches. That they were targeting individuals would suggest that they've already struck all the high-value targets, and now are using their drones to hunt conscripted soldiers dragged into this border conflict. So what can we learn from how drones are being used in the fight over Nagorno-Karabakh? Well, the first big takeaway is that drones are an important part of both offensive and defensive planning for countries of every size. There are enough countries exporting drones that anyone that can afford them needs drones attached to their army. 
Armenia has had less access to drones because of their lower military budget, while oil-rich Azerbaijan purchased an advantage by sourcing drones from Turkey and Israel. These drones were then not effectively countered by Armenia and their Russian-supplied anti-aircraft defenses, showing a potential weakness that other states will be looking to focus on. How do you protect tanks and soldiers from what could be a swarm of drones? In the fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh, it is estimated that the Armenians lost as many as a third of their tanks. But the most important impact of drones on the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan is the influence it has had on public opinion. The Predator drone-like TB2s are all able to fire a missile, but they also transmit video of it back to the controller. These videos of tanks destroyed and defensive positions blown up made for very effective internet propaganda that can influence how people think the conflict is going in other countries. This footage was played on big screens in the capital of Azerbaijan to give the impression that the war is a smashing success, which could be designed to prevent the kind of political unrest that stopped the last conflict for Azerbaijan. War for small countries is a lot like the Hunger Games, where sometimes you need an on-again, off-again romance in order to get rich people to send you gifts and supplies that you need. By showing footage of drones wrecking stuff, Azerbaijan has been able to shop around a narrative of success even before they had decisively won. This time, an end to the war was forced when the Armenian side of the conflict lost control of the second largest city in Nagorno-Karabakh, and they were in danger of losing the capital when they signed the agreement. From the fact that Armenia signed a deal that is widely, wildly unpopular and gives up their claim to much of the disputed region, we can conclude that Azerbaijan was able to achieve a decisive breakthrough on the battlefield when they couldn't in the previous wars over the area suggesting that the advantage provided by their drones may have contributed to the increased effectiveness of the Azerbaijani army. Then again, what really toasted them in the last war wasn't so much a lack of hardware as it was a political collapse and protests back home, so a more stable political situation might be a better explainer for why they were successful this time around. If that's the case, then the main effect that drones had is their propaganda value, and in giving the Aziris the confidence to launch the conflict because they had new and cutting-edge drone technology affecting them like rain boots on a toddler. They could have jumped in the war puddle before, but they might have gotten their shoes wet. But with a shiny new pair of rain boots on, it's just so much easier to go puddle jumping. Now, that is not to say that the war was won entirely with drones. At the end of the day, the Azerbaijani victory in the war comes down to infantry taking territory and holding it. But the whole game of modern war is who can bring up and effectively use more gear, like tanks and anti-tank guns and rocket-launching trucks. If all of your tanks and trucks get trashed by drones, and the other guy still has all his equipment, then you're going to lose that conflict as long as the ones attacking aren't brain-dead. At the end of the day, conflicts come down to gear, logistics, and key decisions. While the Aziris invested in the Turkish and Israeli drones, the Armenians spent $100 million on six Russian jet aircraft. They also had Russian air defenses, which were incapable of shooting down the small and fast-moving drones. This fatal decision by the Armenians showed that the game has changed and traditional air forces are no longer the end-all be-all of a conflict. The war over Nagorno-Karabakh is ended for now, 
with the Aziris and their drones succeeding against the Armenians and forcing them to both accept a ceasefire and to turn over the disputed territory to Aziri control. This has meant that Armenian people who have lived on the land since the previous conflict are being forced out of their villages, and many are choosing to take everything that isn't nailed down, destroy all the plants, and burn the village so that the Aziri settlers who end up here don't get any of the benefits of any of their hard work. The animosity that comes with many people being driven from their former lands is what fuels future border conflicts. Many Aziris were driven from these same territories when they lost the last war, and that animosity led to this war. So what do these two conflicts tell us about how drones might be used in the future? Well, right off the bat, the point I'm trying to make with all of this is that the genie is out of the bottle on drone wars here, folks. This is not something that only the United States and its allies have access to anymore. And we have set the pretty terrible example that you can kind of do whatever you want with drones if you have them. There are now multiple countries selling rain boots, and there are a lot of toddlers out there who want to go jump in some puddles. The United States, Turkey, Israel, China, and Iran all definitely have domestic drone industries, which means as long as you are on decent trading terms with one of them, then your country, separatist region, or terrorist group can be the proud owner of cutting-edge drone technology. Access to drones is already affecting the mental math of countries deciding to go to war, as it makes it cheap and easy to establish air superiority and overwhelm existing anti-aircraft defenses with cheap, disposable, and tiny aircraft. The use of this technology on the battlefield is already super dystopian, and the United States has set the precedent that it is perfectly reasonable to use them in heavily populated civilian environments and anyone that accidentally gets killed is just collateral damage. This is an easy way to mess up a bunch of civilians mentally, which either means creating someone broken with anxiety over a distant whirring in the sky, or radicalizing someone towards violence and revenge against the makers and operators of these drones. In 2015, the U.S. Task Force on Drone Policy concluded that the United States' use of drones has been perfectly reasonable and fine, because the United States didn't have a monopoly on military drones, and, quote, Indeed, there is reason to fear the rapid and uncontrolled pro proliferation of UAV technologies developed in other states, along with the rapid evolution of technology designed to counter UAVs, end quote. Another report published by the Army in 2018 on countering unmanned aerial vehicle doctrine compared the expansion of drone technology to the expansion of aircraft technology after World War I. That would mean a shift from using drones as a useful tool to look over a wall or launch an airstrike to a critical part of a broader military strategy, like the Navy and the Air Force. Drones are the weapons that future conflicts will be fought with, and the future is already here.